This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Fiji's Frank Bainimarama may no longer be leader of the nation, but he is still leader of its national sport as Fiji Rugby Union's president. But could his days in that role soon come to an end? It's no use looking at the past. What has happened uh, may have been there may have been some negative things, but for us, it's all just all about sharing the love moving forward. In Papua New Guinea, it's a game of chicken between consumers and local businesses. After a ban on Australian poultry imports was announced, consumers say it will lead to soaring prices for the meat, while industry heads say the foreign imports hurt PNG's chicken farmers. That uh, poses a risk to the local uh, poultry industry, including smallholders or live chicken industry. And we look at how a lack of Indigenous and Pacific Islander stem cell donors is making recovery hard for leukaemia patients. Despite having six siblings and four sons, couldn't get a match. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, Fijian lawyer Imrana Jalal has become the first Pacific woman to be awarded the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Medal of Honor. The award recognizes inspiring women jurists who fight to defend and strengthen the rule of law. It's a new medal. It was only established in 2021, one year after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who served on the U.S. Supreme Court and was famous for advancing gender equality. To hear more about this award, joining us now is Imrana Jalal, good morning to you. Good morning. Hi. Hello. Hi. And I've got to say congratulations first up for this uh, award, the first Pacific woman uh, to to receive the award. How do you feel when you found out you'd won? Um, stunned, really. I, uh, to be honest, even though I've, I've been a great admirer of Justice Ginsburg and um, have followed her career for many decades, I actually didn't know about this award. So when I was contacted and told, I was absolutely stunned. And, and of course, just deeply honoured and <laughs> emotional and thinking, wow, this woman is somebody that, you know, lawyers like myself, like myself, who deal in human rights law all over the world, women lawyers in particular, uh, of course, look to her. And, you know, even though she's an American and was on SCOTUS on the Supreme Court, Really, her impact has felt, you know, has been felt far and wide, especially when you, you know, you live in the developing world where you're constantly trying to argue issues um, to promote gender equity, gender equality. Um, you know, the, the the stuff that she's done in her life has been really inspiring and, and helpful that way. Mm, yes. Well, I, I'm, and I'm not surprised you haven't heard of the reward. It, it is new, I understand. But yeah, as you said, we've all heard of Justice Ginsburg um, and and her um, unfortunate death a couple of years ago did make international headlines. I mean, you mentioned there um, her, her her being famous for, for gender equality. What impact has, has she had on your life, on your career? Um, yeah, well, you know... Um, I guess the main impact is that no matter how difficult it is, you have to keep trying. I mean, it took her years, first of all, to get a job in a decent law firm, <laughs> and then she ended up teaching at law school uh, and, and, you know, um, fighting court cases that created new precedents. 
Um, the um, the case involving her representing actually a male carer who looked after his aging mother and to get him entitlements under US law that uh, had never been given before was created an enormous precedent because that precedent was subsequently used by um, uh, by lawyers to fight for women's advancement in court. It's a kind of an, you know, one of those ironic things. Mm. But um, and then, of course, she argued many groundbreaking cases to promote women's rights um, within U.S. law. And many of the ideas and principles that she argued and advocated have been used elsewhere in the world. So, um, you know, you know, even though it's a very specific American law, it, it also provided some really good common law examples, which we could use elsewhere to argue in other courts of law in the common law world. So, yeah, so her, her, her impact has been considerable. But I think one of the main things about her is that every time she lost either a policy argument or a court case, she continued to fight. So, you know, um, gender equality is not for the faint-hearted, especially in the developing world. It's very difficult. So her life is about not allowing people to get you down to try to fight the good fight regardless, I suppose. Mm, and now you've received this award in her name. Um, let's look at you and your career, Imrana. What inspired you to become a lawyer? <laughs> well, um, I guess... Um, realizing that i mean i i'm i guess i'm very passionate about women's rights mm. and have always been right from a you know a young child i grew up in a muslim family where you know your community had very rigid roles constrained by you know social norms and so on and not accepting that and the law seemed to be a good arena to kind of wage that struggle. It seemed to be the sort of one of the best things you could do to to um, change our situation. Of course, struggles are needed in every arena, but for me, it was it was about what can we do in Fiji and the Pacific to promote women's rights through the law. So for me, it's it's always been a passion. I mean, I was thinking the other day, somebody asked me a question and I said, right from when I was six years old, I realized that girls are treated differently mm. and it has an impact on you. Like you can do, the, you know, you're not allowed to do this, but your male cousin can do this. So very quickly, even at primary school, you learn about gender roles and you realize that it's because you're a girl that you can't do these things. Having said that, I grew up in a family where my father was absolutely adamant that all his four daughters would be educated and that we would have the full benefit of an education. He would say things like, you know, I'm a Muslim, it's my duty to educate my daughters even though it's widely believed that Islam is about not educating girls. So, you know, um, and and his argument, and we'd say, you know, Father, you are a feminist eventually later in life. And he would say, I'm not a feminist. That's just my duty as a Muslim. He never wanted us to be dependent on a man. And he would say, if you are a widow, you will be able to look after yourself and your children. So 
yeah. So, <laughs> and has um, that has that sort of um, that foundation, I guess, set by your father and and others in in your life as a child? How did that influence your work as a lawyer? I, I know you served as human rights commissioner in Fiji. Is that right? Did you have the chance correct. to to um, look at any cases when it comes to gender equality there in Fiji? I did, and I spent a lot of my life changing policy and legislation. One of the most um, terrible things that had happened in Fiji is that we had this antiquated family laws, mm. and which we inherited from the British system, which was you know, fully rep- replete with discriminatory legislation and common law. And so I spent a good part of my life, 12 years, changing that law, 12 years, you know, with other women's rights group. And I was the, f- the commissioner that um, led the reform in family law, which gave unprecedented rights to women to, you know, seek custody of their children, to claim a share of matrimonial property, to get child support and so on. So certainly... Um, uh, a, a lot of my career has been about what I can do to promote women's rights in the law, but but also beyond it. And I I spent a lot of time working in various organisations as a gender specialist and as and as a human rights lawyer. So I've had the opportunity, and various governments in Fiji have responded to that. And and I remember trying to change the family law went through three successive parliaments because during those 12 years, there were two coups. Mm. And so that is why I'm so committed to the rule of law. You can't promote women's rights. You can't promote gender equality unless there is a solid system of the rule of law because having um, democratic legislation is so intricately connected with having a functioning democracy, right? So for me, the the various interruptions to the rule of law in Fiji since 87 has been a direct assault on the rule of law because also it has not allowed us to progress as women. Yes. I mean, Imrana, it's it's like you read my mind because I did want to ask you about that. We we just had last month this historic election that, that did see well, a former coup leader, Frank Bainimarama, be replaced by another former coup leader, Sidivini Rambuka. Now, under Bainimarama's prime ministership, there was a lot of criticism over the rule of law in, in Fiji. There were some concerns that it was being eroded by politics. What are your thoughts on that as a, a now an internationally renowned lawyer? Uh, did you have any concerns that you saw under the previous government? And do you continue having, having those concerns or under this government? So um, it's a very, um, very good question. So I've actually been away from Fiji for the bulk of those 16 years. And I left because of um, uh, uh, sham prosecutions against me and my husband. So, and that was that was done under the old regime. And so I left because of that, because the uh, persecution of me was relentless. and and and, you know, as as a person who was fighting for democracy and the rule of law, we were targeted. Various individuals were targeted. How were you targeted, old, Imrana? through being 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 prosecuted yeah. on yeah so in december when the when the first when the when the illegal government of Bani Marama took over i was threatened with rape mm. so i left the country in december uh, 2006 because of it then i came back eventually um and uh, and then i was prosecuted because of my stand um uh, um against the regime 
a couple of things. First of all, they'd illegally taken over government. Um, and second, because they were rounding up people and harassing them in the camps and, and, and the, uh, in the Queen Elizabeth barracks, were, you know, were targeting people, dismiss, having them dismissed from their jobs. Um, there was a lot of, it was very targeted against a handful of us initially. And then it became more widespread. So after trying to defend myself and almost losing our home, um, because it was, it's very expensive to defend yourself. This is this is a very, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, a, ve- a weapon that a lot of illegal regimes use worldwide to cower their opposition. And I mean, I'm not involved in any political party. It wasn't party political. It was about defending those who were being targeted by the regime, but also defending myself. Um, and when you... If you're, a, if you're a human rights lawyer and you're defending yourself and you're constantly in court, you, you have no time or energy to defend anybody else, let alone defend the rule of law. So it's, it's called lawfare. Lawfare is a very specific strategy to take down, to take down the oppos- opposition. It was done to R- Richard Naidu recently mm. to, yeah, to prevent him from standing in the election. So lawfare is, you know, has been, it's, it's a very clever strategic way to get people because it has the guise of legality, you see. It has the guise of legality. So even if, even if the regime doesn't win, by having you defend yourself in four different courts, which is what I was doing eventually, magistrates court, high court, etc., and they used this they used this uh, this thing of I had I was a silent partner in a fish and chip shop. <laughs> Sounds so bizarre when you say it. And um, um, we, the the fish and chip shop belonged to my husband, and I was a silent partner. And you had to display your license on the window. And we had had not been given our license, and were told we could operate in the interim. So they prosecuted us for that. Oh gosh, well, and, yeah, and so and I, how do you feel now? This this change in government that that I understand is under the the former Bainimarama government. I, I do you hope to return to Fiji? Well, I I have been in Fiji over the last year, back and forth, but I didn't go back for six years, mm. and my husband didn't go back for nine years because we were concerned, of course, and I had a son there, um, and uh, and. Um, you know, it just seemed to be a, a good idea to disappear for a while because you get exhausted, you see. You you just can have no energy left to, to fight. So I, I left and it was the best thing I did because as soon as I left, the prosecution slowly went away, including against my husband. And so I ended up working um, in Manila and I've been away for since 2010 now. But I have gone back and I went back this year a lot. And, and of course, Watching, watching from a distance what's happening in Fiji has been fantastic. For the first time, people are saying what they want. I mean, it's intoxicating. Freedom to say what you want is intoxicate, intoxicating after 16 years of absolute repression. Because if you said something against the regime in the last 16 years, you were sure to be targeted. You either prosecuted or you lost your job, or one of your family members lost your job, or all of a sudden you couldn't get a contract on something, or your business would be affected. I mean, it, it, it was extraordinary, just extraordinary, the sheer depth of the victimization. Now, this never happened under the Rambuka regime. Mm. He did what he did, and I disagreed with what he did in 87, and I was arrested for it in 87, but he never went for anybody personally. He was on his own 
um, indigenous rights thing. It, it wasn't about individuals. This regime has been so vindictive against individuals, and so many people have left the country because of the of the vindictiveness you see. And considering that, Imran, because I didn't know about your your personal history there in Fiji, (laughs) I I mean, considering that you were the Human Rights Commissioner there, but you have had to leave, you have been targeted by this lawfare, as you say, but now you've got this international award, this Ruth Bader Ginsburg Medal of Honour, and I've seen in Fiji media them, you know, championing you as a Fijian lawyer. Do you have a bit of a, a conflicting feeling about that? Your, your time in, in doing law in Fiji was cut short, but now all these years later, you're you're celebrated for your law. I know it's kind of ironic, isn't it? But but that's that's just the way Fiji is. I mean, if if I had gotten the Medal of Honor. During the old regime, I doubt whether many of the media would have covered it. Mm. You see, one of the things the media did was practice self-censorship. And so um, uh, the Fiji Sun was totally um, compromised because it, it, it was basic, basically the, the Fiji government's media and they never published anything critical. The Fiji Times itself was prosecuted, I don't know whether you were, for contempt of court. So they became very careful Fiji Village has always skirted close to free media and kind of like been very careful about, you know, what it said. But it was, it, 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 of all the media, it was the closest to being free. Um, so um, I doubt whether I would have been celebrated in this way had, there, had it been under the old regime. But because we now have free speech after 16 years, it has allowed various media outlets to publish. Like, for example, the Fiji Broadcasting Commission was totally compromised and, you know, was under the control of the former Attorney General's brother. And so even they did an article on me, the Fiji government web page. I mean, this is this would have been unheard of. And many people have commented on Facebook saying, Imran, it's so funny to us to see you being celebrated by the Fiji government because it's a new regime, of course, and mm. we've got a good minister. Um, the Honourable Linda Tambuya and her co-minister is Sashi Kiran, both great women who really believe in gender equality genuinely. So, of course, they they um, they did a press statement on me, but it's quite it's quite unusual. <laughs> yes, they <laughs> came they came out to congratulate you. Came out to congratulate you. I I mean, yes, I didn't know about this this history and your your interaction with the Fijian government, at least the former one, Imrana. <laughs> so it puts it puts this award in in a lot of context here. This Ruth Bader Ginsburg Medal of Honor. Um, we're we're out of time, but I, I you know we could speak I think for hours about about your your work um, in law. But I wanted to ask, I, I understand there's the May is when the actual you know, medal will be handed over to you and the other Correct. awardees. Um, what's next for you? Will you be heading to Spain in May where that ceremony will be? Yes, yes, I will. I've, I've, I've got a broken ankle and I'm recovering from it, but I'm going to go there even if it's in a wheelchair. <laughs> It'll be lovely. I, I'm actually moving to the Asian Development Bank to work there as a special project facilitator, which is a similar to the job I had at the World Bank for the last five years. So I'm kind of in transition and I've just started at the ADB working virtually as well, actually. And so I will be doing a job where I receive complaints against World Bank projects. And I'm really excited. I love the Asian Development Bank. I used to work there eight years ago when I first left Fiji before the World Bank. And it's a really exciting job job being able to deal with people's complaints and to try to solve them. Mm. So yeah, so it'll be a 
um, you know, an, another segue in my career. And I hope to come back to Fiji in, in three or four years and, and work in some development projects there. One big concern for me is water supply in Fiji. You know, water supply is very poor. And so we have to do something about that because there's a direct link with that and women's time poverty. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, a lot of work for you, um, yes, after this award. But um, congratulations again, Imrana. It's great to speak Thank to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Fijian lawyer Imrana Jalal and newly appointed winner of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Medal of Honour for 2023 speaking to us there. And let's stay in Fiji because as the country goes through a transition of power following the election in December, the tussle for leadership is spilling over into the national sport, rugby. The Fiji Rugby Union's president, former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama, and the chairman and naval commander Humphrey Tawake were widely expected to be ousted at a special general meeting over the weekend. But as Lide Mavono and Suva report, their removal won't happen before April now. And even then, the number of delegates eligible to vote may not be enough to remove the pair. Changes at the Fiji Rugby Union began shortly after the new government was sworn in, with Chief Executive John O'Connor resigning and board member Tevitatui Law, a former secretary of the Suba Rugby Union, was appointed in an interim role. O'Connor, a cousin of former Prime Minister Frank Bainamarama, had already taken voluntary leave last August while an investigation into the FRU's financial operations was conducted after three finance and administration staff had their contracts terminated. As a leading chartered accountant by trade, it would appear Mr. Tui Loa will also be taking a close look at the union's books. For these eight weeks, look, we have the AGM coming up. For me, the main priority is just uh, cleaning up our financial uh, uh, books and getting ready for, for an audit um, that will be done comprehensively uh, and just ensuring that the financial position and performance for 2022 is reported correctly. While the accounts will be on the agenda for sure at the annual general meeting in April, the most controversial element seems certain to be the positions of current President, ex-Prime Minister Frank Bainamarama, and current Chairman, a Naval Commander Humphrey Tawake. Amid calls for the demilitarization of the FRU, many would like to see both men removed, but of the 100 or so delegates expected to attend the meeting, as things stand, only one in five can table motions or nominations. Or vote. That appointment was done a number of years back. Um, I'm not really aware of the final details, but look, I think he's, 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 done, he's done a good job together with the current board. Uh, we didn't have a draw team before. We didn't have an active uh, women's competition before. Uh, we didn't have now contracted players in the 7th and 15th program. So all these positive changes are because of really people at the top governance level driving that direction. So for me, coming in now uh, and under the same board, we'd like to stand on the shoulders of the good work of those people and really just, just, just moving up. It's no use looking at the past. What has happened uh, may, have been, there may have been some negative things, but for us, it's all just all about sharing the love moving forward through rugby. It really comes down to compliance, whether you're compliant in terms of your annual reports your audited financial statements, whether you're running club games, um, whether you have a female executive on your board, and whether you have an active referees uh, association. 
So those are the five key elements for compliant union. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case for most of our 28 unions uh, or associations. So the way I look at it, it's, it's the, the blame is not entirely on them. It's, it's also to FRU uh, how we can assist them to become compliant. Eh? Although David Atuilor was careful to paint the current leadership of the FRU in a poor light, he admits Fiji's largest sporting union is caught in a financial storm. But it's a situation he believes could be rectified if the board and the staff worked together better. To be honest, um, there were some areas that needed to be improved on. Uh, probably there were some controls that could have been tighter. Um, what so about governance? Governance, yes, to an extent, um, but you know, at the end of the day, if the board and management can work together, I think that's uh, that's really where we need to be going. Goal number one is to just really just um, ascertain the true and fair view uh, in terms of the balance sheet and profit and loss statement of Fiji Rugby Union. Um, so we are working hard on that with our finance team and together with our auditors. Uh, if we were capturing all the incomes and the expenses, which I think we are, uh, but also just putting in tighter controls. That was Tevita Gutuiloa, acting CEO of the Fiji Rugby Union, and he was speaking there to our reporter, Lide Muvono, in Suva. It's that time of Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined as ever by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Now, we've been following somewhat over the last few weeks this very interesting story about allegations that Nauru's former consulate building in Thailand was being used as a passport forging den. Now, there has been a latest statement by Nauru, I understand, but take us through the story. Yeah, so there's a few moving parts to this one. So uh, so listen closely, I guess. But, <laughs> um, so the government of Nauru has issued a statement saying uh, it did not sanction, authorise or enter into any such lease that would allow the compound to be used for such you know, uh, illegal passport-making activities. <laughs> uh, and this comes after Thailand authorities uh, recently charged 15 of its own officials with corruption uh, after they raided uh, that consulate or that former consulate last month and found two Chinese men, uh, both of whom are actually wanted in Beijing, uh, forging passports for fellow nationals. Um, those two did, however, manage to escape um, with the alleged help of a number of those uh, local officials who I just mentioned, uh, who allegedly received about two hundred and forty-five thousand uh, dollars in bribes from those Chinese fugitives. Okay. Yeah, so. Uh, so those officials have since been charged um, with corruption uh, and abusing power. Uh, however, according to all reports so far, they've, they've denied all those charges. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Lots of money floating around mm. there as well. And those, as you said, those two Chinese nationals at the centre of it uh, still haven't been apprehended by Thai authorities, we understand. Do we know exactly how they actually got access to this compound, to this former Nauru consulate? Yeah, well, this is where it gets pretty interesting. So the man at the centre um, uh, of, of 
of these allegations is former Consul General uh, Onassis Dame um, uh, for, for the Nauru. He was the yeah, Consul, Consul General, General of Nauru. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Nauru government uh, statement seems to imply that he was the only one who had authority to lease out the building. Um, however, the government has refuted any association and mainta- maintains it did not authorise uh, any such lease of the building. So... Yeah, I guess um, he might have the answers. He might have the answers, yes. Mr. Onassis Dame, uh, if he is listening, do get in touch because we'd be very <laughs> interested to speak to you and find out what exactly is happening with that, uh, well, with his compound, it sounds like, uh, there in Thailand. Um, now, another very interesting story. This one time from Papua New Guinea, but uh, also involving some vessels from China this time. Two Chinese vessels have been detained in Papua New Guinea. Why is that? Yeah, so uh, authorities have, uh, have allegedly, uh, well, allegedly two two fishing ven- vessels entered PNG waters in Mill Bay uh, illegally last week. So this is reported by the Post Courier, and uh, and they were caught by PNG Customs uh, without proper documentation, uh, and they also had dogs on board as well. So uh, it's understood the two vessels left uh, from Beijing, uh, and the crew and the vessels are currently being quarantine until investigations are being carried out. Mm, Yes, it sort of smells like something to do with illegal fishing, um, which is quite a a scourge in the Pacific, Mm. of course. Um, But the dogs, have you ever heard of dogs being on board of vessels? I haven't actually, but I think there's probably a biosecurity issue around that somewhere (laughs) as well. That's true. Well, well, apart from the dogs, was anything (laughs) illegal found on board? Um, uh, authorities have been pretty tight-lipped around that so far, so they haven't uh, they haven't yet confirmed if any uh, you know contraband or, or things like drugs or, or you know a, a fishing illegal fishing was found on board. However, they did say uh, more reports will be made this week once the investigation is finalised. Mm, yes, um, in very interesting stuff. We'll see what comes off it and what happens to those dogs. Hopefully, they're faring well in uh, in PNG's prison or wherever they're being detained. The that those are vessels. <laughs> yes, um, well, we hope so at least. <laughs> Innocent until proven guilty. Um, now, the Fijiana in Drua. Well, we just heard a rugby story out of Fiji um, just early in the show. But now you've got a story about the name itself, the Indrua, shared by both the men and women's teams. Um, it could soon be changed. The Fijianas might soon play under a different name. Is that right? Yeah, it looks like it's pretty much set in stone. So uh, Fiji Rugby Union has uh, have confirmed they are working on finding a new name uh, that basically epitomises uh, Fiji. Fijian women. Um, so this is reported by the, Fee, the Fiji Times, and it follows a number of requests to, to move away from that name, which you just mentioned, which, which mm-hmm. like you also said, they share with the men. Um, so Fiji Rugby Union is currently working uh, with the team, as well as um, sort of the government in hopes of finding that, uh, that perfect match. Yeah, very interesting. I'm just typing online at the moment to try and find out what Indrua means. <laughs> Apparently, it's a double-hulled sailing boat that uh, originated. Uh, it's considered a sacred canoe. Um, but, but listeners, do correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, this is just Wikipedia telling me what Indrua means. Um, but do we know what the new name might be for the Fijianas? So FRU has been pretty vague uh, so far. However, the acting chief did say they wanted it to be uh, unique to, fear, to Fiji. Uh, so something, in, you know, something like a native species uh, or an animal. Um, didn't give any examples, though. Um, however, what they did say, however, is that any change that takes place, it won't be until uh, after the next season. So mm-hmm. the upcoming Super W season uh, begins in a couple of months' time, and and just given how close it is, there's not going to be enough time to change things like branding and merchandise and uh, and things like that. And uh, and who could forget? I mean, they are the reigning Super W champions, indeed, uh, or premiers as well after going uh, unbeaten last season. 
Yes, yes, it's very uh, exciting. It's March, then the season, I think, begins. Super yeah, w, is that March right? 25, that's right, uh, opening game against the uh, against the Brumbies. Yes, very exciting. And I can't wait for the new name as well. There's always, particularly as, uh, as a media covering um, the sport, it's, there's always a bit of confusion when someone says the Indrua mm. are playing. You're like, oh, Fijiana or the Fiji, the men's or the women's? So hopefully the new name will, will clear up some of that confusion. Yeah, and I hope there's a lot of local consulta- consultation as well. Indeed, indeed. Well, Kyle, thank you for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was reporter Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the region. But don't go anywhere. we still got some more stories for you. Coming up, we'll look at why Papua New Guinea has decided to ban imports from Australia of chickens. Some say it could lead to rising costs for the poultry, but local industry says it could be a good thing. We'll hear more on that in about uh, 10 minutes or so. But uh, coming up, uh, we'll also... Oh, well, we'll look at also why there's a push to get more Pacific uh, donors, stem cell donors, uh, on the books after this short break. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. When you're younger, you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual until you're much older. Then you realize that you're proud to be part of this ritual. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. As I mentioned, a stem cell transplant can mean the difference between life and death for many people undergoing treatment for blood cancers. Often donors have to be from the same ethnic background as patients so that stem cells can be accepted into the new body without risk of rejection. But a lack of Pacific Islander and Indigenous donors means many cancer patients from those communities find it hard to get a good match, as Dubrovka Volade reports. When Kevin Maloney was diagnosed with blood cancer, he had one question for his doctor. We saw a leading hematologist who told me what my options were. And the first question I asked him was, how long have I got? And he said nine months. That was it. We then had a a roundtable conference as to whether or not we would go ahead with the treatment. We then decided we would and then had to find a donor. There was a chance for survival, though, in a stem cell transplant. That's where blood-forming cells destroyed by chemotherapy in cancer patients like Kevin are replaced by healthy stem cells from a donor's blood. In many cases, the transplant is their best hope for survival, but all depends on finding a good match within their own family or from a registry of donors. Kevin was lucky. As a white Australian, he was able to quickly find a suitable donor and make a full recovery. But his friend, a Maori rugby player, was not so fortunate. A good mate of ours called Peter Selby, who uh, of the Maori extraction, and despite having six siblings and four sons, couldn't get a match. And when I was recovering from leukaemia, Peter contracted it. I had a stem cell and lived. He didn't, and unfortunately he died. 
Part of the problem is that patients are most likely to match with a donor from their same ethnic background. But since Maori, Indigenous and Pacific Island donors are underrepresented in the registry, it's harder for patients from these communities to find the right match. Kevin Maloney's experience inspired him to establish a charity raising awareness among Pacific and Maori communities about leukemia and how they can become donors. Experts say more work like this needs to be done. Globally, there are around 40 million donors, of which I would say less than 1% would be from a Pacific Island community. So within Australia, we would probably be looking at only around a couple of percent, maybe five percent, something something in that order. Lisa Smith is the chief executive of the Australian Bone Marrow Registry, which also registers stem cell donations. That's really where the work needs to be done. We, we need to increase the diversity of the Australian donor pool to make sure that it matches the Australian patient population. And the best way to do that, of course, is to make sure that we can increase the total number of donors that we can recruit within Australia. She says about 80% of stem cell donations in Australia actually come from overseas, particularly Germany. That's because in Europe, people only need to provide a cheek swab to register as donors and are later contacted for stem cell donation once they match with a patient. This overrepresentation of European stem cell donors in Australia has made it even more critical for Pacific Islander communities to donate their stem cells. For Samoan Australian Lotu Ayuta, it was his mother-in-law's terminal blood cancer diagnosis that prompted him to step up and become involved. Me going through this with my mother-in-law, knowing a friend who, a rugby player who had to go through this, you just, you don't know until you need it. And then realizing that our people are affected quite hugely, it's, it's scary. It's, it's massive. It's important. As a rugby coach and community leader in Victoria, the 36-year-old encouraged most of his team to also sign up to become donors. The night that we did it, we had about, just on that one night from our club, we had about 67 people do it. So it's quite big. Like we, we got pretty much the whole club to do it. But there are still some barriers to getting more Pacific Islanders to register for stem cell donations. In Australia, people register for stem cell donations only when they donate blood. A pilot project was launched through the registry to make it more accessible by using mouth swaps instead, like the European model, but that has now ended. Kevin's charity received funding through that, but has now been told they will have to fund swabs out of their own pockets, which could be as high as $100 per person. His team are now planning to ask other clubs in the wider community to sign up to become stem cell donors. First foray was into the rugby clubs that we know and have great relationships with in Victoria, but it is equally applicable in all of those other sports and in every other state. And that's, that's where we would like to see ourselves going. And that's why we have Operation Pacifica Engage nationally. And in the future, we would like to spread it internationally. That was Kevin Maloney, founder of the Australian charity Tackling Leukemia, ending that report by Dubrovka Volodar. And it's understood that some of that stem cell pilot project funding, as we mentioned in the story, came from the Australian government. The ABC has contacted the Ministry of Health for comment. We're still awaiting a response. 
You're listening to Pacific Beach. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. There's confusion in Papua New Guinea over a government ban on chicken meat imports from Australia. While local poultry producers are welcoming the move, customers worry they'll be hit with higher food costs. Carolyn Tiraman with more. Reports from PNG say the decision to stop businesses buying chicken meat from Australia was made before Christmas following a push by the Poultry Industry Association over biosecurity risks. The PNG government has yet to make an official announcement about the ban, but businesses were told they would not be given import permits this year. Wilson Thompson is from the PNG Farmers and Settlers Association, Inc., and says the ban is necessary because an outbreak of diseases would be catastrophic for the local chicken industry. PNG, uh, we don't have all the resources to deal with uh, biosecurity issues, manpower shortage, resources, the geographical setting. So if we have an outbreak, it's very, very difficult to contain. So we must uh, ensure that uh, from the beginning, we must try to do what we can. So in this instance, uh, there had been uh, outbreaks of avian flu, Newcastle disease and other uh, diseases that affect the chicken or birds, including wildfowls in the country. But we noted that uh, there have been uh, imports uh, of uncooked poultry products into the country that uh, poses a risk to the local uh, poultry industry, including smallholders or the live chicken industry, and not only that, but uh, also the wild birds and all that. So we must try to protect that before it destroys the industry, which is more devastating than uh, not doing anything at all. There are two major chicken-producing entities in PNG, including Zanag and New Guinea Table Birds, which would benefit from the ban, as Zanag General Manager Stanley Lay explains. The fact of the matter is that if people want to import product from Australia or from anywhere else in the world, they are welcome to do so. They've just got to make sure that those products are tested and, 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 and heat-treated to the point where they don't pose a biosecurity risk to, to Papua New Guinea. So it's not to say that that product is banned because you can, in fact, import poultry product out of Australia. You can, in fact, import poultry product out of Asia. That product needs to be cooked to mitigate the disease risks. Uh, Obviously, the main benefit for for poultry farmers in Papua New Guinea is that we are protected from uh, a serious risk of foreign exotic diseases coming in. And to be quite frank, in a country where we don't have the capacity to deal effectively with a large-scale virulent disease outbreak in the commercial sector or in the SME sector, which is a significant part of the industry. That is by far the main benefit to PNG. Really, the, the cornerstone of the poultry industry's success in PNG, it is one of the largest SME sectors in this country. It's one of the quickest-growing SME sectors in this country, and that is because it is easy for PNG poultry farmers to get engaged with small-scale poultry. We don't have a lot of disease challenges that could change very quickly. So we, we, we think it's important that PNG has a, has a high acceptable level of protection there and, uh, and that is enforced. Concerns have been raised by consumers that the ban will add more burden on them as they are already paying high prices for poultry products. Marie Linneby, head of the PNG Women in Agriculture, says 
The government should have had discussions with the community before introducing the ban. The demand here is very high and there's not enough supply. So uh, well, once the government does that, it has to be consultation between the local people and then importing such things because I don't think the government knows what they're doing. If the government is wise about doing that, they should say, okay, we're giving you a certain number of months to start, uh, you know, increase production to the main producers in the country. Say, okay, you have a time frame. You meet that uh, demand and then keep that continuously. I will ban all imported. I don't know for what reason they have banned it. People are saying that 20 kina for four pieces of chicken is very expensive, but what about the uh, local producers who look after chickens? Are they cheaper? When you multiply the 20, about eight pieces still doesn't equivalent to one old chicken. You want to buy a local chicken, 50, 60 kina, that's locally produced, and then you buy one the pieces that are packed in the store. When you add them up to become a whole chicken, people prefer to have the old chicken rather than the Packets because the packets uh, is much expensive. The government should have did a, a proper survey of what's on the ground. Maybe talk to the two major chicken producers in the country. Pacific Beat has reached out to the PNG government for comments for this story. That was Caroline Tierman ending that report. And just before there, she was speaking to Maria Linneby, head of PNG's Women in Agriculture. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Thanks for joining me this Tuesday morning. Hope we can do it all over again tomorrow.